Hi, thanks for listening to our sermon podcast, Second on the Mount. I'm George Anderson, minister at Second Presbyterian in Roanoke, Virginia. I do not take it for granted that people sit in the pews on Sunday morning or listen to these podcasts hoping to hear something that connects them to God, to each other, to the world. And so I spend hours seeking the right word for the right time and said in the right way. I welcome your feedback. I encourage your sharing this sermon with anyone it might benefit. And I hope you'll return to this podcast again or come visit us for worship. We'd be happy to have you. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask that in the words of Scripture and the words of the sermon, that it is your eternal word that somehow gets into our minds and hearts and lives. Amen. This is the third Sunday of Easter, and we continue to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection. I want today to consider immortality. Is that what we celebrate in the resurrection, the gift of one's own immortality? When the question is asked that way, when the hope is that somehow I, as an individual, might have life after death, when the spotlight of the resurrection shines on me, I think the simple biblical answer is no. I mean, that would be Paul's answer. The entire 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians is his reflection of what it means that Christ has been raised and what it means that we are raised with him. As you listen to his words, listen for what will neither wither nor fade, but listen for the word of God that lasts forever. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received and which you also stand through which you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as a first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit really to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have come to believe. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I remember my father saying after scripture readings a line from scripture that I think is particularly appropriate today for this passage and for my sermon. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yvonne Plebuk moved away and I miss her. 
Yvonne was endlessly fascinating. She had an early career as a fashion model. As with Helen Fitzpatrick, Yvonne was easy to spot in worship because of the stylish hats that she wore. And in her home was a piano that once belonged, I think, to Little Richard. And she is married to a top physicist who works for NASA, Dick Plebeck. It is because of this NASA connection that I mention Yvonne. Her physicist husband collects articles and papers by scientists who are Christian believers. She shared with me a file containing copies of some of those papers and articles. One is by Jim Odom. He was chief of engineering and testing for NASA's Saturn V program. He wrote a paper called A Layman's Perspective of Science and Religion. He thinks it's ridiculous to think that knowing and believing are incompatible. To him, it's clear that each one informs the other. Another is by Stephen M. Barr, Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Delaware. His paper, retelling the story of science, ends with the line, The search for truth always leads us, in the end, back to God. And then there was a published article and an unpublished paper by Werner von Braun. Now his name may not ring a good bell for some of you who are history buffs. Before becoming a NASA scientist, von Braun developed rockets for the Germans in their war effort in World War II. Though he saw Hitler as, using his words, a pompous fool with a Charlie Chaplin mustache, a tyrant who thought that he was another Napoleon but was wholly without scruples, a godless man who thought himself to be the only god, von Braun was still an enthusiastic Nazi because he saw Germany flourishing economically under totalitarianism. And he could excuse anything that was awful about Hitler as long as Germany grew stronger and the economy flourished. He bought into the idea that any means was justified if it served Germany's ends. In the war effort, he both endorsed and employed the use of slave labor. I think you get a good picture of how morally corrupt he was. But I'll add that he used his high position, influence, and income to help him begin many extramarital affairs. So why would I quote this guy? Well, after the war, von Braun became ashamed of his support of the Nazi cause. Along with other German scientists, he moved to Texas and began working for NASA. And a day came when a neighbor in Fort Bliss invited him to church. I accepted, von Braun said, because I wanted to see if the American church was just a country club as I had been led to expect. Instead, I found a small white frame building in the hot Texas sun on a brown grass lot. And together, these people make a live, vibrant community. This was the first time I really understood that religion was not a cathedral inherited from the past or a quick prayer said at the last minute. Basically, von Braun had a conversion experience, and he grew more and more devout as his life went on. The paper that he never published but shared with Dick Plebach is titled The Bible in the Space Age, 
And in it, he explains why he gets as excited by biblical revelations as he does by scientific ones, asserting that reality, if viewed only through the lens of scientists or only through the lens of a believer, is a distorted view. His published piece has the same title as my sermon, Immortality. As a scientist who once served an egomaniac who craved to be glorified with horrific results, von Braun was troubled by the idea of an individual wishing to be immortal on his or her own. Which is not to say that he did not believe in immortality. As a physicist, he knows that nothing is ever lost in nature. He said science has found that nothing can disappear without a trace. Nature does not know extinction. All it knows is transformation. Even a nuclear explosion which destroys all life in its radius simply transforms matter into energy. Nothing is lost. Now that's... His scientific view, that's looking through the lens of a scientist. And even physicists who are agnostics or atheists would agree with what he said. Nothing is ever lost in the universe. Remember, though, that von Braun was convinced that only having the view of a scientist is to have a distorted view. For him, simple immortality is a cold and amoral vision and one who has it could even end up serving a tyrant as long as it serves one's own selfish desires. But as a Christian, von Braun asked himself why his conversion mattered ultimately. Can that eloquent vision of God's love and redemption be destroyed? Can the life-enriching truth of the gospel, the truth of justice with mercy, the truth of the grace of reconciliation, can those truths ever end, even if human history were to end, even if the world ever got sucked back into some black hole, can, it, can human souls ever end? He didn't believe so. I mean, sure, these are spiritual truths and not material ones that can be studied and possibly proven by scientists, but he does not believe that the truth that claimed his mind and his heart in Texas could ever stop being true. Nothing in God's realm is ever lost. In fact, that is the only reason as a Christian he could even find joy in eternity. It was a cold and uncomforting thought for von Braun that we could live eternally if love and grace were not at the heart of what it means to live eternally. It is the difference between a so what life and a for what life. Live eternally? So what? Live eternally with Christ? Well, that means living for something, living with meaning, living for what Christ lived for, God's love. Von Braun sharpens his point when he says, it is because of our belief in immortality that we live ethical and moral lives. Christ's kindness, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness matter in this life because they matter eternally. That's Paul's vision in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which 
of which our passage is just an introduction. If Paul were to hear what some Christians say today about being saved, I think he might slap his forehead. I mean, anyone who would suggest to him that the goal of faith is simply to be rescued at death better settle in for a lecture. No, Paul would say. The bodily resurrection reveals in this material world what is eternally true about God. To be in relationship with the eternal God is to be about what Jesus was about in this life. So it matters how we treat the earth. It matters how we treat others. It matters if we work for justice and reconciliation because from the evidence of Jesus' life on this world, it clearly matters to God. Paul saw Corinthians spiritualizing the resurrection, divorcing it from the ethics of life. And he talks about giving his all for the sake of the gospel. He talks about working hard, not to brag, but because that is the only logical way that he knows to live as someone who is raised with Christ. He will live in Christ right now. He will die in Christ because whether he lives or dies, what is of Christ cannot be killed. The love and goodness of God will never end. The Mission Bill campaign is, I think, a good, concrete way to think about what Paul and Von Braun are trying to tell us. Our congregation, our extended community of faith, we're, we're challenged to be a leader in helping four mission partners accomplish something that will be transformative for years, possibly generations to come. Now, if the projects are successfully completed, we certainly want them to be enduring. We want them to last years, many years, we pray. A century or more would be great. And you know, the odds are stacked in our favor. After all, we are adding strength to strength. The PCC keeps getting stronger and more effective. The seminary has already been around for more than 200 years and is still going strong. Our congregation isn't going away, nor is our commitment to missions. And the Dominican hospital being built will probably only grow in the coming years. And yet we know that longevity is not eternity. There may come a day within our lifetimes when one of these projects we help ceases to be. It could be for bad reasons that one day they fail. It could be for good reasons because they accomplish the purpose for which they are created. But maybe one will one day stop. And as the Bible told us and as physicists remind us, if we look far enough ahead, we know human history will one day end. But the virtues that the projects are to serve, the virtues of kindness, compassion, selflessness, the healing of lives and of community, those virtues are eternal. And that is why we build these lasting but temporary things, because we mortals who die are raised with Christ and in showing God's love through moral and ethical witness, we are living right now as those who are raised with Christ. That's how we mortals live into immortality. To use Paul's words again, whether we live or die, we live in Christ. 
We live in God's love, which is eternal, and from which nothing can ever separate us. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.